Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Zechariah chapter 7 is where we're picking it up. Uh, the last chapter 6 there, uh, between chapter 6 and chapter 7, two years have elapsed uh, since chapter 6. For us, it's only been one week, but for Zechariah, it was two years. Uh, he, had had, he had received eight visions, if you recall, um, and now uh, uh, the Lord is going to speak to him. So we'll just pick it up here. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now in the fourth year of King Darius... It came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev, when the people sent Sherezer with Regem Melech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? So for 12 years... uh, yeah, for 12 years after the exiles came out of captivity, uh, they started building the temple for two years, and then, and then for the next 12 years, basically, they stopped building the temple. That's when the Lord raised up Haggai to encourage him to get back to work to, ra- to build the temple. And then a little later on, he raised up Zechariah to encourage the people in the building of the temple. So by this time, and, and the people responded to Haggai's prophecy. They started going back uh, to rebuilding the temple. So at this point in this prophecy, the temple had been partway completed. Not totally completed, but they had been working on it. They, they had come back to the, okay, yeah, we need to focus on this. This is what the Lord wants us to do. Um, and so, so if you imagine, it's partway rebuilt by this time. Now, there were Jews that were living outside of Jerusalem, uh, so they weren't right there in when all the activity is going on. And they sent these two men, and I'm not going to go over their names again because I stumbled over them the first time. But these men were sent as the representatives of these, these people in the outlying areas around Jerusalem. And as their representatives, they sent them to Jerusalem to pray to the Lord for them on behalf of them as their representatives, but also to ask the prophets and the priests this question. And it's this question is, you know, we've been in captivity the, the, all this time that we've been in captivity, every fifth month of the year, we've done this time of fasting and mourning. Should we continue doing it? Uh, well, what was the, the fifth month? Well, they commem- uh, commemorated the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. It was during the fifth month when that occurred. And so during their captivity, they would every year roll around to the anniversary of it. They would spend that day weeping and fasting. And they did it for 70 years during the ex- exile and for 16 years after the exile. And by this time, the temple, like I said, had been partway built. So some of the guys are like, you know, should we really be doing this? I mean, the temple's rebuilt, or it's being rebuilt. Should we, you know, is this appropriate? So they say, well, let's ask the priest. So that's, that's what's happening here. So they sent these guys to ask this question, and they were probably expecting either a yes or no answer. Yes, continue doing it, or no, you're right. You know, the temple's part, stop doing it. And so they ask this question. Well, the Lord gives Zechariah the answer, but it's in four messages, uh, basically all of them dealing with it. And so the very first message in response to their question is in verse 4. It says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? 
for me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you have not obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So he's asking them, in the, so, you know, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months, were you doing it for me? And again, the fifth month commemorated the destruction of the temple. He mentions the seventh month. That was another time that they fasted and mourned. And the seventh month commemorated the murder of Gedaliah and the remnant of the Jews with him. What, what, what is he talking Who's this Gedaliah guy? Well, after the Babylonians came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they took, they took basically the young and the, the strong and the wealthy and the nobles. They brought all the people that they wanted, basically, out into captivity and into Babylon. But they left behind the very poorest of the people, the very weakest of the people, the very oldest of the people. They left them there in the land, and the Babylonians appointed this man named Gedaliah to be kind of their governor in the land. And uh, God had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet at that time to Gedaliah and to the rest of the, the, the remnant, basically, that were left in the land. And God hey, said, hey, stay in the land. I'm going to take care of you. I'll bless you in the land. Just stay. Just, just submit, basically. And don't go down to Egypt, because that was the thing. Should we go down to Egypt? At that time, Egypt was still kind of strong, uh, a strong power. Babylon had not conquered at that point. And God said, no, through Jeremiah, don't go to Egypt. Stay here. I'll bless you. Well, there was a guy by the name of Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. He took ten men with him, and uh, he came to where Gedaliah was, and he basically murdered Gedaliah, and he murdered all the people that were with him. Uh, they thought that they were like spies for Babylon, you know, and, and so they, it, was, it was a terrible thing that happened. It's such a tragedy. And so that was, during the seventh month, they commemorated that terrible occasion with fasting and mourning. Well, you see, the problem is, the Lord had only appointed one fast for the Jewish people, and that was at the Day of Atonement. That was the only time that they had to fast. These were man-made observances. God hadn't told them to do that. They had done that, uh, and, and, and the Lord says, when you're doing that, were you doing it for me, or were you doing it for yourself? The answer was they were doing it for themselves. Whether it was out of guilt, they felt so guilty over what had happened, or whether it just made them feel better, or maybe it made them feel more spiritual, or they realized, man, we really blew it. Now we really need to get on God's good side. And so, you know, in some weird way, they're trying to manipulate God. Have you ever tried to do that? Yeah, you've blown it, and then also you do things to try to, try to make God happy with you. You know, well, I'm going to start praying more. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'll start coming to church again, you know. And we do these things not realizing that, that God loves us. God loves us, and it's, it's not based on our performance. It's based on his grace, that relationship. Well, in any case, they were being hypocrites, and it was empty. It was an empty religious uh, ritual. Why was it hypocritical? He says, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? In other words, the rest of the year, when they weren't fasting, they were basically living for themselves. They were just, you know... I mean, that granted, their life was not pleasant in Babylon in the beginning. 
You read Psalm 137 and it details how miserable they were in the beginning. But, you know, 70 years passed. Pretty soon they kind of integrated into the land. They, they intermarried. They, they, they actually became, you know, they, they started getting possessions. And things weren't too bad at the end of the 70 years for them. But so for, the, for most of the time, the year, they lived for themselves. So a few days of fasting meant nothing if the rest of their time they're living for themselves. You know, there's people that do that. They, they, they spend six days a week or six and a half days a week doing whatever they want to do, living how they don't want to live. They don't care what God is. And then Sunday morning rolls around, and, and, and then they're, then they're I'm going to go to church, you know, because i got to feel spiritual. You know, i got to do something so that, you know, i got to keep my salvation going, you know. And, 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 and that you get into this ritual type of thing, and God's not pleased with that. And that's what he's trying to get across to them. It's hypocritical. Plus, it was empty. They should have fe- we- uh, excuse me. They should have wept and fasted over their sin before they went into exile, not after. It's too late now. They're already there. But before they should have, had they obeyed the Lord when He had spoken to them by His Spirit through His prophets, man, the temple would still be standing. They would still have been in Jerusalem. This none of this would have happened. And then the other thing is, you know, after seventy years. You know, okay, there were some older people that lived all the way through that 70 years of exile, but there was a lot of young people that were born during that time. And, uh, you know, they would hear the stories probably, but, you know, kind of like with any kind of religious, traditional thing, it kind of takes on a life of its own. At some point, you know, there were probably a lot of these people are like, why are we doing it? I don't know. It's just we've always done it this way, so we'll do it. And it just became basically... And, and a ritual, a religious observance, not really connected with anything. It took on a life of its own. And so the first message in these verses, the Lord's telling them, hey, I never appointed this. You're doing this for you and not for me. You know, that's a good thing that we should do, you know, examining our own lives. The things that we do, you know, regularly, over and over, are, are we doing it for ourselves or are, is the Lord really leading us in these things? It's a good question to ask ourselves in anything that we're doing. Verse 8. Now we get the second message. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. So instead of empty, religious, hypocritical observances, just obey the Lord. Just obey Him. You know, that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. The Bible teaches us obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than fasting. In the New Testament, James tells us, hey, be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. You deceive yourselves if you're just hearing the Word and not doing it. So throughout the Bible obedience, that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Execute true justice. That means make judgments and decisions according to God's standard. Not according to your standard, the culture's standard. Not according to your own justification. Well, you know, the reason why I do this is because... You know, no. Whatever we do, however we think, however we judge, it should be according to God's standard. What does God say about this? What does the Word teach us about this? And then he says, show mercy and compassion, everyone, to his brother. Mercy. What is mercy? 
Well, it, when you go and you look at it in the Bible dictionary, I mean, it says goodness, kindness, and faithfulness. That's what mercy is. You know, if you want to learn about mercy, read Psalm 136. Psalm 136, it's, a, it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting psalm. Each verse either describes what God has done or it describes God's character. Every verse, all the way through. And it's, it's got quite a few verses in it. And the, at the end of every verse, after describing either what God's done or his character, he's this, he's that, he's good, he's that. At the end of it, it repeats a single phrase, for his mercy endures forever. In other words, everything that God does, everything that he is, the foundation of it is because he's merciful. That, that marks the foundation uh, for his actions and his character is mercy. And that's what God is saying. Hey, let your life, let the foundation of your life be mercy. Are you a merciful person? Are you merciful to people around you? He also says don't oppress, which means to don't exploit, to rob, to cheat or defraud or take advantage of the helpless. And in this case, he mentions the poor, the widow, the fatherless or the stranger. Don't oppress people who, who can't do anything about it. And then don't plan evil in your heart against your brother. What does it mean to plan evil? Well, not only does it mean like, you know, thinking I'm going to do this bad thing to a person, but it also includes regarding someone with malice, having jealousy in your heart towards someone, envy of someone, or bitterness, unforgiveness towards someone. Because don't, don't harbor those things in your heart. Verse 11, but they refused to heed. See, God had told them all these things, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words of the Lord, which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so they called out, And I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. So God's saying, you know, hey, I told your forefathers, I sent prophets, I gave them a message over and over and over again, but they refused to heed. So first, they refused to heed to pay attention to God's word. That's the first step. You know, just, okay, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I don't care. You know, that's the first step is is refusing to pay attention. But then it says they shrug their shoulders. And that doesn't mean like, I don't know. That's not, you know, when we shrug our shoulders, he's like, "Eh, I don't know. That's not what it means. The word shrug in the King James, in fact, if you're reading the King James Version right now, it says that they pulled away their shoulders. If you're a parent, you probably understand what this is. If you've gone and you're, you go to your child and your child's being stubborn and they're, 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 you know, they're being disobedient, and maybe you, you touch, put your hand on your shoulder, hey, you know, and, you, and you're, you're not angry. You're just like, hey, and they go, oh, I don't want to hear you. That's, that's what it's talking about. That's, what it, that's the picture. If you've had kids, usually that's when my I get, oh, I get all, oh, you don't do that to me, you know. And that's when, uh, that's when the, uh, Luke's never did that, though. He never, he was, a, he was a perfect child. I mean. 
But it implies that they were being touched. In other words, they're being touched, but they're pulling away. I don't, I don't want to hear it. You know, the Holy Spirit touches us sometimes, doesn't he? You're reading God's word, and all of a sudden, ooh, wow, I feel like the Spirit's speaking to me. Or you're listening to a message, and wow, Lord, you're touching me. Well, it's, it's one thing to say you're touching me. It's another thing to say, ah, I don't want to hear it. I don't want it. You know, that's, that's what's saying. So first, they refused to pay attention. Secondly, they, they pulled their shoulders away. But then it progressed to stopping their ears. What it means by that is basically it's like, I don't want to hear you. I don't hear anybody talking. You know, it's, they made themselves dull and insensitive to the Spirit speaking to them. And then the end result is that they made their hearts like flint. And what that really means, it's like a hard stone, like a diamond. You know, a diamond, it's like one of the hardest things. You know, you can scratch glass with diamond, but you can't scratch diamond because it's so hard. So, you know, in other words, you just see the progression in their description of them. You know, if you're here this morning, or maybe you're listening to this message, and you've lost your hunger for God's word, you know, maybe, you know, you've pulled away, the, you know, you've sensed the Holy Spirit touching you or something, and, and, and you've kind of pulled away, oh, I don't want to hear that. Or, or maybe the word no longer pricks your heart into responding. If that describes you this morning, my word to you is just be careful. Be careful because you're heading down the same path that these forefathers of these exiles did. And so he says, just as they ignored the Lord when he called out to them, so he ignored them when they called out to him. In other words, when you know, they ignored him, they ignored him, and then finally when the Babylonians, they breached the city and they started destroying it, then all of a sudden they're crying out to their God to save them, and it's like, I'm not hearing you. I don't hear you. You know, that's kind of a thing. So the second message here is don't be stubborn. Don't be like your stubborn forefathers who brought judgment on themselves. Instead, choose to obey. You and I, we have a choice this morning to obey God's word. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you have a choice to respond. How you respond is your choice, of course. And so he's telling them, obey, choose to obey. And then the third message, verse, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Uh, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Notice in that one verse there, the zeal. I'm zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. I mean, that zeal and zealous, it's, it's repeated over and over again. What is God communicating to them about his zeal for them? This is what he's communicating. Zeal is a driving force in a person's life. If you are zealous about something, you're going to make it happen. If you're zealous about coming to church, man, you're, you're going to get here. If you're not zealous, it's like, oh, it looks like it might rain. I guess I'm not showing up today. I don't want to get my hair wet, you know, or, or ah, uh, oh, you know, I just, ah, there's a cartoon on I want to watch, you know. If you're, not, if you're not that zealous about it, it's not going to happen. But if you're zealous about something, 
It's going to happen. Listen to this prophecy. It's in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For, and you know this one because we sing it, or we sing it, we, we read it at just about every Christ, Christmas program. It's, this verse is mentioned. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, and establish it with just with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. In other words, the coming of the Messiah, there was nothing that was going to stop the coming of the Messiah. There was nothing that was going to stop it. That was God's plan all along. I'm bringing a Savior. I'm sending my son to die on the cross. There was nothing going to stop it. That was the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He's going to, I'm, I'm going to make it happen. And so God here is saying, man, I'm zealous for you, Jerusalem. I will dwell in Jerusalem. I will come. You know, in other words, God, his zeal drove him to send his son into the world to save us from our sins. That same zeal for Jerusalem meant that, hey, this is going to accomplish. This is going to happen. God's encouraging them here. He says, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. You know, in Amos 3.3, Amos poses this question. It's, of course, the Lord speaking through him, but can two walk together unless they are agreed? You see, sin causes a break in fellowship between us and God. When, when, when we're in sin, that fellowship is broken. And that's what Amos is referring to. You, you can't walk together unless you're both on the same page. And sin takes us off of God's page. It, sin causes that separation, that break in fellowship. And the Lord is promising them that one day he's going to dwell in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming back. I'm returning. I'm going to be back in fellowship with you, is what he's saying. And the Lord is promising, again, that one day he'll return and he'll dwell in Jerusalem. Well, when is that? He's speaking about the millennium. It's very interesting when you, when you, when you get through this, this passage in Zechariah, so much of it, God is talking about the future glory of Israel, uh, the future glory during his thousand-year reign when he comes and physically dwells from Jerusalem. In fact, lots of Old Testament prophecies speak of it. Isaiah 2.2 2 says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting when you take all the old, all the uh, the the prophecies about Zion and about God returning in the kingdom, you know, the kingdom age, and then you you look in the book of Revelation. It talks about during the tribulation, these great earthquakes, like such as the world's never seen, and you know, things are, mountains are going to be moved out of its place, and and you know, like right now, the Rockies are really tall, and Mount Everest is tall. They're going to be totally changed during that time. I personally believe when we enter into the millennium, at the end of the tribulation. The tallest mountain is going to be Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And everybody is, that, that's it. And, and that's where Jesus Christ is going to reign physically from Jerusalem. And at that time, that city will be called the City of Truth, 
the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Jerusalem is going to be transformed by the presence of the Lord. But you know, the same is true for you and me as the believers, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You and I, we are being transformed by the presence of the Lord in our lives. There have been some of you, I've seen you come to faith in the Lord, and I've seen some of you that, that have come and, and really rough around the edges, and, and as you've been growing in the Lord, I've seen that transformation taking place. It's a beautiful thing to see. People who, the Lord's presence in their lives, they, they become more like Jesus. I mean, that's our goal, right? We want to become like Jesus, and that happens as you continue to abide in the Lord and grow in the Lord. Transform people whose lives are true. Think about that. Your lives are true. There's no hypocrisy. Not only are you speaking truth, but, but your life is true. There's no, there's no two sides to you. It's just, this is who I am. That's, that's the best way to live your life. This is just who I am. Transform people whose lives are true, people whose lives are marked by holiness, because that's another part of God's transformation in a person's life. You become more holy. You become more like Jesus Christ. So when the Lord comes and dwells in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's going to be transformed. The city of truth, the mountain of holiness. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. You know, think about this. For the returned exiles at the time of Zechariah's prophecy, there's no walls in Jerusalem. That's going to happen in Nehemiah's time later. At this point, there's no walls. The temple is the only thing that's being rebuilt at this time. There's enemies all around. At that time, Jerusalem wasn't exactly a safe place for kids to play in the street. You know, guys, you ever told your kids, go play out in the street? No, it's not safe, right? Well, it wasn't, definitely wasn't safe in Jerusalem. You know, when Israel got their independence in May 14, 1948, the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, when, when, when ben, David Ben-Gurion you know, came outside and you know, they announced Jerusalem is now a state once again, the people and the, 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 all those Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, you can see old film footage of them, they were dancing in the streets. They were just, everybody, it was just joy. Everybody was so happy. Praise God, we're, you know, we're back in the land and all this stuff. Everybody was happy, happy. but there was a, there was a guy and, and uh, he was an associate of, of uh, David Ben-Gurion and he said everybody was happy except for David Ben-Gurion. He wasn't rejoicing. He's in, and he reportedly told this associate of him, he said something to the effect of, today they're dancing in the streets, but tomorrow their blood will be flowing in the streets. And that's exactly what happened. The very next day, all these Arab nations, the War of Independence, man, they, they started killing people, and, and it, they, it started a war, basically, because their Arab neighbors didn't want the Israelites to have, or the Jews to have that land. Fast forward to our day, you know. Um, I I've gone to to Israel before, and and uh, you know, 
contrary to what a lot of people think, it's actually a very safe place to be. It feels safe. I mean, of course, everybody's carrying guns around you, so, you know. Uh, but uh, there is a relative, and, and I use the term relative, calm and peace. But even today, there's terrorists, you know, killing people in Jerusalem. Buses, you know, bombs going off and buses and everything. When, uh, when we went to Israel, uh, one of the things that we did was uh, we went on this... Uh, Temple, uh, the Hezekiah's Tunnel tour. That's where you went underneath the city and you took a tour of where the all the you know Hezekiah's tunnels were, and it was just a, a fascinating tour. And uh, we had we were three Calvary Chapel pastors. We had I forgot how we had a busload of people, and uh, so we had one pastor in the very front, one in the middle, and they said, "Hey, why don't you this time be in the very back? Make sure there's no stragglers or anything." I'm like, "Yeah, that's fine." So we we did this tour, and we when we got done with the tour, um, again I was the last in this probably 40, 40 or maybe 50 people, and uh, as as we came out of this tour, the tour ended in the Arab quarter. Of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, there's this plainclothes Jewish guy walking next to me, and and I'm looking at him, and, and it was a policeman, and he's got his gun, he's got his finger on the trigger, he's like this behind me, and I, of course I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> seriously, and yeah, he was because we were in the Arab quarter, and you never know what could happen. So you know, even today, even though there's relative calm, it hasn't been fulfilled that the children can just play in the streets, but that will be totally fulfilled in the millennium. Listen to Isaiah 65, verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There's coming a time when, when people are going to live long lives during the millennium. For you students of prophecy, notice at the end of that verse that I just read, speaking about my elect, I believe this is the same elect that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 22. We won't get into it, but... Go ahead and take notes if you want. Um, but I think that's the same elect that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Again, put yourself in the shoes of these exiles. This promises of God probably seem so extraordinary given the current humble state of the Jews that you know that that were there in the land and the lord says hey it may seem extraordinary to you but do you think it's extraordinary to me it's not you see a lot of things we look at and we see it with our human eyes and like jesus said the things which are impossible with men and we look at stuff and go man i don't know how it's going to happen but everything's possible with god and so god says hey it may seem like a big thing to you but do you think it is to me no it's not verse 7 Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. 
So here he's prophesying and promising bringing the Jewish people back to the nation from all over, basically, is what that's referring to. Geographically, I'm going to bring them all over, but also spiritually, because he says, I'll save my people, I'll bring them back, and they shall be my people. That's God's choice. That's his action. Hey, I'm making you my people. But it also says, and I will be their God. That's their choice. That's their action. I like what uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown says in its commentary, God will be faithful to his covenant, enabling them by his spirit to be faithful to him. There's that mutual, man. God says, hey, you're mine. And we say, Lord, you're mine. It's that, that relationship that we have with Jesus. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the, Lord of the, for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages for man nor any hire for beasts. There was no peace from the enemy uh, for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these, and it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong." Now, God is acknowledging here that before, you know, uh, he had let them go through a tough time. Uh, you know, it was tough earlier, but now he's promising that, hey, I'm not going to treat you like I treated you before. And the fact that God fulfilled his former promises was a guarantee that he would fill his future promises And so he says, let your hands be strong. Finish the building of the house of the Lord. You know, the Lord had sent prophets, of course, Zechariah, who we're reading right now, he was one of the ones that the Lord had sent after, after their exile. Haggai also, these two prophets had most recently, they had the same message. What was the same message? Build the house of the Lord. Do it, man. Get back to work. God will be with you. Do it. You know, They had so many prophets even before them telling them what they needed to do. For them, it was never a matter of, I wonder what the Lord wants us to do. They knew what God's will was. Hey, build the temple. Rebuild it. Get back to work. They just had to choose to do it. And you know, the same is true for you and I. You know, if, if, if you've gone through, if you've ever gone through a time of disobedience to the Lord, and you, you backslid. And you, it wasn't like you were unaware of, like, oh, I didn't realize. You know, you knew what you had to do. You just chose not to do it. You disobeyed. You rebelled against the Lord. For you and I, we know what to do. It's not an issue of not knowing. It's an issue of choosing to obey the Lord. And then he says here, And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Why should they rebuild the temple? Because the Lord was going to use them to be a blessing. And of course, that's prophesying about the Messiah who would come from Israel. 
But it's even more than that, I think. You know, for you and I, we have been saved. Are we a blessing to others around us? What do you mean? Well, I know Christians that get saved, and then they either start or they continue living for themselves. They just, you know, they're, they're saved, but they're doing their own thing, basically. Are you doing that, or are you living for other people? Are you ministering to people? Are you involved in other people's lives? Are you discipling people? Are you, are you helping people? Are you, are you encouraging people? Are you praying for people? Are you being a blessing? You've been saved. Are you being a blessing? Do we bring joy and encouragement to others? You know the best blessing that you can give anybody is for them to look at your life and go, and I want what you have. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ because you're different than everybody else around here. You're a believer. I can tell. Or maybe they can't even figure it quite out, but they're like, man, there's something about you. And, and you have the opportunity to be a witness or to be an example or actually to pray with someone to come to faith in Christ. That's the greatest blessing you can, you can give anybody. I've never heard of anyone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of someone's witness and go, man, I wish, I wish, man, I wish I never did that. You know, They've always been, man, I'm so glad I came to faith in Christ Jesus. The best blessing we can give to anyone is to live our lives in such a way that people are drawn into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. So I'll save you and you'll be a blessing. The Lord has saved us so that we will be a blessing to others around us. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent, so again in these days... I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor, and do not love a false oath. For all these things are, thing, for all these are things I hate, says the Lord. See, there came a time in Judah's history where the Lord was determined to punish them. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years and generations, he had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, urging them to repent and to turn back to the And they ignored the Lord. They ignored the prophets. They, they misused and abused and, in many cases, killed the prophets. And so they reached a point of no return, basically, and all that awaited them was judgment. In fact, there was one time when we were studying through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He's always weeping for the sin of the people. You know, he's always praying for the people. And at one point in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, stop praying. Stop praying. I'm determined to punish these people. And it happened. There was no stopping it at that point. But the Lord is saying, hey, just as I was determined, and nothing was going to deter me from punishing the people, he says, so now... That same determination, man, I'm going to bless you. I'm going, to, I'm going to just pour out my blessings in your life. I'm determined to do it. Do not fear, but this is what you should do. Again, it's going back to their questions of, should we do these feasts and stuff? No, but this is what you should do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Do not love a false oath, for all these things are the things I hate, says the Lord. So the third message, man, I'm going to be faithful to blessing you. You be faithful to me. 
And then the fourth and the final message regarding those times of mourning and fasting. Verse 18, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore, love truth and peace. Now, I already mentioned the feast or the fast in the fifth month commemorated the temple, the destroying destruction of the temple. The seventh month, as I mentioned before, commemorated the murder of Gedaliah. But now he mentions these two other times that the exiles mourned and fast. The fourth month, that was in commemoration of the actual destruction of Jerusalem. The tenth month was when they commemorated the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem. So they had all these anniversaries of all these terrible things, and they would spend those days fasting and mourning, and it was really as a result of their sin that they were doing that. And the Lord is telling them, hey, I'm going to turn those times of fasting and mourning into times of joy and feasting. Why? Because each time that they're reminded of their sin, they're going to be reminded of God's grace. You know, sometimes we, we tend to live in the past, right? Oh, I, I, I can't believe I did that. And, and, and I, I've known people that are, they've, they've done some terrible things in their life, and that's all they focus on. They're just, uh, you know, and they can't get beyond that. And for you and I as believers, man, when we get to those points, praise God, we, we're just reminded of his grace and his faithfulness and his forgiveness, his love. Like, and those times, instead of just dwelling on the past, man, just rejoice that the Lord's forgiven you and you can move forward in your walk with the Lord. You can serve him. You, can, you, don't have to, you don't have to live in the past. Yeah, I was a terrible person. I can't believe I did this to that person. But you've been forgiven. You've been washed. You've been clean. Now move forward. Step forward. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Now, Jerusalem, for the most part, at this point in this story, is lying in rubble. Okay, there's just there's rocks everywhere. It's just it's just it's just destroyed. Not only that, but there weren't many people flocking to Jerusalem at this time. It wasn't like a tourist destination. Come see the 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 rubble of of what was once glorious. Even among the remnant of Jews that were when 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 the Babylonians were taken over by the Medes and the Persians, the Lord raised up Cyrus, prophesied hundreds of years before he was actually born. Cyrus, and he names him by name. Cyrus, my servant, he's going to let the people go back, and that is exactly what happened. You would think it'd be like, wow, let's go back. Well, you know what? Less than fifty thousand of those Jews that were in exile, went back. Because most of them were like, man, I, I kind of like it here. <laughs> I'm happy. Why do I want to go and become a pilgrim and live in rubble, you know? Well, at that time, it might have been very hard for them to envision the future glory of Jerusalem in the state that it currently was. But the Lord is encouraging them to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to continue rebuilding the temple because a time will come when many peoples and strong nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord and to pray before him. And he's speaking about the reign, the, the reign of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, the thousand-year reign, the millennium. 
Isaiah 66, 18, it shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. They'll see my glory. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. In the millennium, Israel is going to be recognized worldwide as the Lord's chosen people. Nations are going to be streaming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord during the millennium. In fact, it's quite possible that the earth is all going to speak one language. You know, there was one guy that tried to do that, Nimrod, in the the very beginning of the story, of man's story, Nimrod, you know, the first really a type of antichrist, tried to draw the world. We'll have one language. We'll do it. Hey, by the way, guys, we're getting closer to that, too. I mean, that's, I uh, was telling David before the, before the service, I read this article that uh, president, our, our current president, when he's out of office, and it's, it, it used to be rumored, but I guess there's a little bit to support it now, he's pursuing becoming the secretary general of the UN. That's his next goal. Because he wants that, that, that power. I mean, power is addictive. And, and uh, can you imagine what that's going to be like with some of the decisions and the laws that he's already trying to push on us? What it's be like if he becomes a secretary? Of course, the UN doesn't do anything, so I guess maybe it's not a big deal. Let him, ha- let him have it. <laughs> but anyways, it's, it's interesting to me that at the beginning of the story of mankind, there was this push to, to, to have one language. Remember the Tower of Babel? And, and then it, God just dispersed them. It's not your time, dispersed them, and, and they all had different languages. Well, isn't it interesting, at the end of time, coming together, God's going to give everybody one language. I, I, I think it's probably going to be Hebrew, so if you want to get your, uh, what's that stone, rose stone or joist? Rosetta stone, there you go. Maybe you might want to invest in one of those programs and start learning Hebrew ahead of time. You'll be more fluent than some of us, you know. Something to think about anyways. Zephaniah 3.9 says, For then I will restore, and he's speaking to the millennium, for then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So quite possibly we'll have one language spoken during the millennium. Again, we need to ask ourselves, are we living our life in a way that is attractive to Christ, or excuse me, that is attractive to others? Do people see Christ in us? You know, it says here, 10 men from every language shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man. Just trying to picture that's kind of interesting. But, you know, I like this. I'm going to close with this. It's a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. It says, we're all clinging to the seamless robe of that one Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, who because of his work on the cross is the only basis on which anyone may approach God and entreat him for spiritual blessings. The only reason... We're blessed today. The only reason we can even ask the Lord to bless us, it's not because of it's because of Jesus, that one Jew. And man, we want to cling to his robe and cling to him. What a beautiful picture. And that's we'll end the message there. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your promises in your word. And Lord, you've you've promised all these things to to Israel, Lord. We've, we've seen them being brought back into the land, Lord. We've seen how so much of these things are coming true, and Lord, we know, we know that, Lord, just as you have fulfilled past prophecies, Lord, that these future prophecies, Lord, that they haven't been fulfilled, Lord, we have that confidence that they will be fulfilled. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, 
And Father, I just pray this morning that we're encouraged to look to your promises, to stand on your promises, to trust in your promises, and that, Lord, we would continue to draw closer to you, that our lives might be transformed, Lord, that we would be a blessing to others, that we would be attractive to the world around us, and that people would want what we want, Lord, or what we have, Lord God. And so, Father, I just thank you for those reminders this morning. I thank you that you've given each one of us the Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to speak to us, to correct us, to guide us, to encourage us, Lord, to make us more like you. We thank you for that gift of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, this morning now, I just pray your blessing on your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.